This is Bioflash. The focus for us has always been do great science with great people and focus on patients. The real mission is to say we're curing 20%. How do we make that 40? How do we make that 60? If you can't change clinical practice in a way that improves outcomes for patients and lowers the cost of care, you may as well not start. Part of being at a small startup biotech company is how quickly we can, we can move. If Roche can buy Genentech, if Pfizer can buy Wyeth, any motivated party can buy anybody else. Welcome to BioFlash, the podcast about the San Francisco Bay Area's biotech ecosystem. I'm Ron Ludy, the biotech reporter at the San Francisco Business Times. One of the cool things about my job is running across people who have been doing amazing things throughout their careers, and yet they've stayed out of the spotlight. One of those who we talked to in this episode of BioFlash is Mir Imran. Today, he's the chairman and CEO of Ronnie Therapeutics in San Jose, which is trying to build what looks like an ordinary capsule, but is kind of a robotic pill entering the small intestine where it settles on a position and launches the drug that it's carrying out of the capsule and into the intestinal wall. The technology recently landed Ronnie a deal to deliver a hemophilia A drug from Shire, which also invested in the company. Novartis and AstraZeneca also have signed deals with Ronnie, which is run out of Imran's InCube Labs, which is an incubator space. This isn't your typical incubator either. Instead of outside startup companies looking for a low-rent shared services space, InCube is all about ideas that Imran has or is trying to commercialize. And that's the big reason why he is so interesting. In his 30-plus year career, he has accumulated some 300 issued patents. That includes patents around the first FDA-approved automatic implantable cardioverter defibrillator. And for anyone who's been through the airport, those full-body scanners. As he puts it, he's always looking to solve big unsolved mysteries. So here's our talk with scientist, inventor, entrepreneur, Mir Imran of Rani Therapeutics. So just looking at your biography, more than 20 life sciences companies that you founded, um, 15 of which have IPO'd or been acquired, and we saw the hallway there of all of those successes, and more than 300 issued patents. Um, but looking at your personal history, you came to the U.S. originally, right, for for from medical school, right? No, from for engineering. For, for engineering, okay. For my undergraduate, all my education from Rutgers. Okay. Uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees in uh, uh, undergraduate and double graduate degree in biomedical engineering, and then went to medical school and uh, never practiced medicine. So. Uh, never become a, became a real doctor, right. uh, <laughs> and um, in fact, I, I actually hated medical school and um, had um, no desire to see patients. Um, I, I, you know, because I was more of an engineer, problem solver, 
than um, to sort of repeatedly see the same kind of patients over and over again. There's nothing wrong with that. My father was a physician, and uh, um, I didn't want to do what he did. Right, right. So um, do you feel, I mean, with all of those numbers that I cited, the patents and the companies, and, you know, two of the more recognizable things that I think people would know about is um, the defibrillator and the airport device, the scanner. The security lockbox, real estate lockbox. Yeah, in a way, you know, and and you hit on it. The the physician sees a patient and then another patient, then another patient, and maybe sees, I don't know, 15 patients a day, 30 patients a day, maybe. You can help (laughs) 3,000 or more people a day. I mean, is that kind of why you... I I think the impact is much um, bigger. And, you know, what I really enjoy is solving big unsolved mysteries. And so, the, uh, and a lot of times, you know, you go into addressing a problem, identifying a problem, and, and trying to, to understand it. I think the solution is a side effect or the, a byproduct of understanding the problem. So my uh, philosophy is uh, first identify the problem determine if it's worth solving or not. It's worthy of solution. And and there are different criteria you can come up with to determine if it is worthy of solution. Uh, namely, you know, how many people does it affect? Is, is, it, uh, is the problem bad enough that you're going to improve patient outcomes? You know, if it's, you're going to improve it by 5 or 10%, I don't want to go after that problem. So, but if the problem is really poorly understood, poorly solved, or unsolved, I like I'd like to you know work on that and to see if I can understand it. And I've spent a lot of time focusing on understanding the problem rather than solving it. Mm-hmm. In fact, most scientists and engineers, their initial instinct is they see a problem, they immediately get their brains working on solve, trying to solve it. Once you do that, you stop understanding the problem. And sometimes it takes me years to figure out a problem, mm-hmm. to understand it. So, so that other approach, is, would you call that like solution bias? Um. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, they, uh, look, I, I've worked with hundreds of engineers over the years, maybe a few thousand, and brilliant people. Um, they, you know, an electrical engineer will look at from an electrical standpoint mechanical engineer will want to solve a problem, the same problem mechanically. Uh, a software guy will say, I can write an app for it. So, so you know, they look at these problems with a single lens, mm-hmm. which, and the problem doesn't care what your background is. The pro- most of these problems require a multidisciplinary understanding and multi- to understanding the problem and a multidisciplinary approach to solving the problem. So if you don't have those multiple disciplines incorporated in your background, it's really hard to understand problems. Mm-hmm. Very few problems are unidimensional. Right. Is that is that why, I mean, in, in taking the tour here at InCube, you have all this expertise Every discipline together. you can think of, yeah. almost. And, and it's not it's not Genentech, it's not <laughs> a big pharma, it's, it's InCube with uh, 120 people, some employees, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so uh, those 120 people span pretty much every discipline you can think of. And the disciplines we don't have, 
um, we fill in. I, you know, I'll uh, com contribute to those. For instance, in one of our projects, um, we needed to have a battery, and the battery I, we needed wasn't available. Um, and we talked to battery companies. They said it'll take, you know, a couple of years and a million, two million dollars. And I wanted to have the battery now. So we set a little chemistry lab to make batteries. We designed it, fabricated it, and worked. And now we are scaling it up to meet our needs. So we had zero battery expertise six months ago. Hmm. And now we have battery expertise. Right, right. What inspires you? I mean, the your your patents and your companies span from medical devices to now a lot of therapeutic work to the airport scanner. Um, the, the inspiration is and in the and the thread of my thinking is really driven by problem unsolved mysteries. So I let the problem tell me how it wants to be solved rather than imposing my will on the problem, mm -hmm. so to speak, or, or a sin discipline on the problem. So I'm, that's why I stay with the problem. So the problem says um, uh, for, for delivering biologics orally, you really want to inject, take advantage of the fact that the intestines don't have pain receptors, and so you want to inject it in the intestine. So um, that thought process is devoid of how I'm going to do it. You know, so the initial hypothesis was, you know, this is maybe the way to do it. I had no idea how how technologically it would be implemented. Mm -hmm. It took me a couple of years to figure that out. Um, but um, time is on my side when I'm dealing with really unsolved mysteries. Right. Um, I'm not racing against some other group that's going to beat me to it. Most of the time, these big problems are unsolved for a reason. Right, right. You've used the term in the couple times we've talked about the big unsolved mystery. Um, what's the what's the mystery with Ronnie? And, and you kind of hit on this already about the drug um, release mm -hmm. in in the intestinal lining. So, so the big unsolved mystery there was it, it's the the whole concept of delivering biologics orally is not a new concept. It's been around for 50 plus years, uh, ever since, you know, insulin has been around for 80 years. So people are trying to think of, can we deliver insulin orally? And then other drugs started coming along, like GLP-1, thyroid hormone, human growth hormone. Every one of them is an injection. And so people have tried to convert some of these drugs to oral. And the, uh, the people who are working on it, this is where the single discipline Comes, becomes an issue, right? Mm -hmm. So the people who were solving this problem the last 50 years were all um, medicinal chemists, uh, biochemists, uh, pharmacologists. Their approach, the toolbox they had was chemistry. So what they said was, okay, the intestines have these uh, proteases and enzymes that destroy protein drugs. So we're going to come up with a chemical that will block these proteases and enzymes and protect the drug and have the hope of getting some of that drug absorbed. And 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 that didn't really work. So they, somebody else came along and said, well, in addition to these protease uh, blockers, I'm also going to put another drug and chemical in there that 
enhances absorption by disrupting the mucosal lining, denuding the mucosa uh, so that more drug gets absorbed. Mm -hmm. So you're really damaging the mucosal lining. Now it, it rebuilds within hours, but you're still damaging the mucosal lining. But even that didn't work. And I mean, you can say it worked to the extent that there was maybe a tenth of a percent or two tenths of a percent of the drug would get absorbed. And I had never thought about this problem before. Then I did a little bit of literature survey and I said, you know, every which way you can think of in terms of blocking proteases and enzymes and enhancing permeability has been tried and they have failed. So I'm not going to go down that path. And I came at it or talking and I said, what we want trying to accomplish is a, a person takes a pill and then when the pill gets into the intestine, take advantage of the uh, fact that there are no pain receptors and we know that injections work. Let's inject it in the intestine. Pain-free injection. As far as the patient is concerned, they're taking a pill. So it was a very simple hypothesis. I had no idea how I would do it. And then just understanding the uh, and knowing the anatomy and the physiology and the chemistry of the gut, GI tract, that's where the answers came from. It came from the biology of the gut, the pH changes, the uh, um, uh, how the um, the fact that the intestines are highly vascularized. So I knew that the absorption would be better. It was really a long journey of uh, understanding the problem, uh, deducing solutions from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then building those solutions. And in many cases, we had to build new technologies to create those solutions that didn't exist. Well, it's interesting in, in the tour here, um, you mentioned the, the pH changes and how that sets off the reaction that ultimately is this microneedle shooting mm -hmm. out and, and delivering the drug, which kind of reminds me of like the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. In a way, do you, do you feel like you're you're an explorer in that way, and you're coming I mean, up with new technologies to meet the problem? Yeah, I mean, you have every every innovator that is faced with these kinds of issues. Yeah, you know, it's the same thing whether you're going to the moon or you're going into the gut. It's uncharted territory. I mean, for instance, if you do a literature search on the um, what is the size of the human gut you won't find a clear answer to that. Hmm. So what we have started to do is, uh, I said, we've got to have a, an answer to that because we're going to design the system for humans. Um, in the case of these animals, we can get uh, harvest the, uh, the gut and measure anatomical measurements. So we went to a hospital chain and we said, you know, the organ donors who are donating their organs, nobody uses the intestines. I want the intestines. So we've been getting intestines from every shape and size person, male, female, small, big, large, and we've been anatomically characterizing. So we are, we've created now a database that is so unique, no one else has it. Just on the length of the intestine. Le length, le well, we knew the length, but the, how the diameter changes mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. one end to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, what should the characteristics of a balloon be so that it actually works in, in the full range of humans? Right, because you don't want that reaction to happen too soon. Too soon, or and, and you want the reliability of delivery high. So you have an unknown, you have no answer to it, 
then you investigate and you come up with a plan to get an understanding. Mm-hmm. And now with with um, Ronnie Therapeutics, you have three corporate partners on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most recent that you've mentioned is Shire, Shire mm-hmm. um, and Novartis and AstraZeneca. So maybe if we can talk a little bit about um, Shire and what what the timeline is there, since that's the most recently announced, um, you know, and, and what the process is of getting their drug uh, for hemophilia A mm-hmm. um, into that capsule mm-hmm. and where it's going and both where it's going physically and where it's going uh, clinically. So we have come up with a standardized um, process for taking any drug, new drug, formulating it into the right formulation that goes into the microneedle. So a solid? Solid drug formulation. So we have to add various excipients to it to, to make it stable and, and put it into the microneedle. So that's the first step. And then we test it repeatedly to make sure that in the process of formulating, we haven't destroyed or damaged the drug. Mm-hmm. So once we go through that, that takes a probably couple two to three months depending on the drug once you have that then you say okay let me now test it in animal models and uh, we go in uh, porcine model different animal species and test it and then we sample the blood so we deliver the needle into the intestinal wall and we sample blood and see if the drug appears in the blood and mm-hmm. what is the profile of that so we do that uh, and that takes a two three months of testing um, then we make full capsules with the drug, and then we test it again in at least one or two animal species. And we make sure that those are clinically relevant. Mm-hmm. And how, we, how do we do that? Is In parallel, we'll take the same drug formulation and put it IV or sub-Q, the way it is being done today. And we look at the profile that creates, and the profile our oral creates. And we, want, we adjust that to match what is being done. Right. So that's how we arrive. It's a systematic approach to mimicking the same drug concentration profile in the bloodstream, whether it's given orally or through an injection. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, then we'll be running a lot of safety tests because going into humans really requires uh, making sure that paramount is safety and then the second is efficacy. So we want to do a lot of that upfront and go to the FDA or the uh, European regulatory body or wherever and get their blessing to start a clinical trial. Now, the advantage for us in, in all these collaborations is that we're focused on existing drugs. Mm-hmm. They're already approved. So, so we know that the drug our toxicity has been proven and it's safe and efficacious. We have to basically mimic that. It's a different delivery system. So the risk of failure is much lower as opposed to in a brand new drug which doesn't have a history. Right, right. And, and what's the timeline for that? I mean, is Shire So let's say to... if, we, if we, it takes us a year to, uh, or maybe a little over a year to do all this development work and prove that it works in animal models, that happens. And so there are naturally occurring animals uh, model where the hemophilic animals. Mm-hmm. So we can actually see if it works. And then we will sit down with uh, Shire and uh, 
negotiate a license, hopefully successfully, and then um, come up with a clinical trial plan with them. It may take uh, two to three years after this first initial thing, so maybe a four-year journey mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get approved. Excellent. So there's been a lot of progress in hemophilia. I mean, just Amazing recently. amount of progress in recently. Yeah. Uh, Genentech with its drug and, you know, kind of bringing that down to maybe a, a one-week injection. Right, right. Um, Biomarin is working on gene therapy, so that's essentially correct. one that's shot and you're done. beautiful uh, approach. Yeah. So what opportunities are in there then for and using, again, the Shire collaboration in hemophilia, what what are you saying is maybe the, the big aim here? Um, is it a once-a-month kind of pill that you'd like? See, see, I, I think when you're taking pills, once-a-day pill is the most ideal. From patient remembering it, nobody minds it. Once a week or once a month is actually more problematic from just remembering to do it at the right time. Right. So we think that all these, you know, going to a once a day is the best from compliance standpoint, which is which is a big problem to solve. Um, the other drug therapies, for instance, the Roche uh, Genentech uh, antibodies called the bispecific antibody, mm-hmm. um, and they're currently approved for uh, hemophilia A patients who have developed immunity to factor eight therapy. Right. So they, they hopefully they're responsive to this antibody. Now this antibody could also be expanded to a broader population of um, hemophilia A patients, not just the ones who have developed an immunity to factor eight. Uh, we don't know what its limitations are going to be. We don't have enough history. Uh, you know, maybe the that anti the body the, those patients develop an antibody to that antibody. That happens frequently. So, in fact, you know, if you look at Humira, which is another very big TNF alpha for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, 20-25% of the patients develop an immunity to it. And the gene therapy uh, is in its infancy, which has a uh, very uh, promising future. Uh, but in all of these cases, how do you deliver that to the patient? So, if it's a once-a-week antibody, can that be turned into a once-a-day pill? Yeah, most likely. So we'll be there for that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, gene therapy, you know, there will be some interesting things going on there and how you can modulate those genes, what um, um, uh, viral vectors that you use or um, CRISPR um, technology. Um, we don't know what's going to work and how effective it's going to be. Another um, thing that we know works quite effectively is liver transplants. So patients who are hemophilic and they get a liver transplant, they get cured mm-hmm. um, because the uh, factor eight is generated in um, uh, epithelial cells as as well as in the liver cells. Mm-hmm called the sinusoidal cells in the liver. Certainly a pill is much better than pill is, liver No matter transplant. what the underlying therapy, a pill is much better from a patient uh, convenience and compliance standpoint. Right. So can you talk at all about your journey in, in coming up with the defibrillator? And, um, you know, what are some of the... The, the no's that you faced and the yeses that you faced and 
you know, to extend that to today, um, you know, where where are the where do startup entrepreneurs um, face those no's and yeses today that maybe you faced with with that device? So um, uh, the defibrillator had a, has a fascinating history. Uh, um, just as a so I did not come up with the original concept. There was a, a physician named Michel Mirowski mm-hmm. who um, was in Baltimore. And the genesis of his idea was really from a personal tragedy. Uh, his best friend had died of sudden cardiac death. And he was uh, quite upset that there was no one to uh, rescue this friend when he had the episode. And um, so he became a... a uh, crusader, so to speak, for for getting this done, and um, I hooked up with him um, early on in 79, um, I, I believe, and we started work uh, and uh, on taking what's a big on a cart mm-hmm. and putting it in a small can, uh, and it would have the ability to monitor the heart all the time. And deliver a shock and bring them back to life. Mm-hmm. Simple concept. Um, the interesting thing at that point was cardiac arrhythmias were not well understood. Right. So we were sort of groping in the dark to, to some extent. How should we design? How should we detect these arrhythmias? In fact, the first defibrillator that we developed was only designed to detect fibrillation, not tachycardia. Tachycardia is the higher rate, hemodynamically unstable arrhythmia that kills people. And that's where most people start with tachycardias. And if you don't treat tachycardia in a few minutes, it degenerates into fibrillation. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that. That knowledge wasn't there. We thought it was all spontaneous fibrillation. So we designed the, 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 the defibrillator to detect fibrillation and not detect tachycardia. Mm-hmm. So the first 10 patients we did they were just fainting and, and the device wasn't working until their tachycardia degenerated into fibrillation and they were on the you know the edge of death. Mm-hmm. That's when the device detected it because it was designed to detect fibrillation. So it, it, it had a checkered performance early on, but FDA was so much easier to work with than we would. <laughs> we, we figured that out and we said we gotta we gotta change the detection scheme. So. I, I actually came to Stanford. There was a card, cardiologist, uh, famous guy named Roger Winkle, worked with him to um, get uh, uh, recordings from patients who, who were prone to sudden cardiac death. And we determined that there were all these tachycardias. So we took those recordings on a cassette tape. Um, For those who don't know what a cassette tape is anyone <laughs> <laughs> on a cassette tape and we would play them through our circuits and uh, got them working and lo and behold the performance went up and and uh, we were able to take that second generation device through uh, FD approval uh, in 1985 got approval and you know there were a lot of skeptics along the way cardiologists were skeptical that it would ever work or um, the pacemaker companies would um, laugh at us because it was a big device and pacemakers had become fairly small then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the results were just stunning. You know, people who had them, they didn't die of sudden death. They were resuscitated 
many times and many of them most of them went on to live for decades after they got hmm. uh and i think now more than close to 3 million have been implanted worldwide and the over the last 40 years and has become the standard of care right you know when you're working on any of these things problems you don't know whether you, what your the solution you're coming up with will will um um uh, withstand the test of time and and will actually become a standard of care maybe something you do is good enough but then gets replaced by something else right that ha- happens very very often in medicine um and so far you know 40 years later 35 years later uh, it's still the standard of care um and uh, i mean i've done other things that at the time you do it you don't really have a clear understanding of how big an impact is going to be you can only measure that impact decades later mm-hmm. was that something though that you you knew the impact that it would have not completely mm-hmm. i i you know um so so initially here's the reason initially it was approved for only for patients who had survived a sudden death episode mm. so that population is a really tiny population right because you have to have a, an episode and somebody has to be there to revive you right and then you become a candidate for that therapy <laughs> we always knew that um the real population is those patients who are prone to sudden death Mm-hmm. that's a much bigger population and so um under lily's um development they did a large study under fda um approval uh to show that people who had um propensity but had not yet had an episode and then you could do that by catheter based testing you can identify people who are at high risk of sudden death mm-hmm. and they would get it so the fda approved that and that became the new standard so that's when it really expanded into a much larger patient population and everything i would guess has some kind of no you can't do that oh, kind yeah, of yeah. effect what is there anything that parallels that i mean uh, today with with ronnie i mean do you i think this ronnie that? is a great example of you know when we started talking to pharma companies and said we can deliver antibodies which are you know huge molecules relatively insulin is 5000 daltons and antibody is 160000 daltons mm. right it's like 50 times 40 times bigger and people hadn't been able to deliver insulin so we have come up with a system that is independent of molecular weight because we're injecting so um yeah, yeah you know in fact when first groups of companies i talked to and i said i can deliver any molecule including antibodies and said maybe you're a smart guy but we don't we're very skeptical you have anything that works and um um so yeah there were a lot of naysayers along the way yeah but it, it, at the end of the day what convinces people is the data right right um in in talking to the three partners that you have mm-hmm. what do you think um was it the data then that yeah, yeah. convinced so we, them exactly yeah i mean we had come up with some data on our own before we talked to them uh we, we, on insulin and humira mm-hmm. um two of the most two of the biggest biologics and we we had data in animal models and we showed it to them and that's what convinced them 
and otherwise well-defined and understood. Right. Too. And we did them side by side, you know, injection versus oral. Mm-hmm. We had we had the graph, and there was no um, ambiguity there. Right, right. Um, how has the landscape, especially, and I know you've moved away from medical devices, per se, uh, to therapeutics, with, with therapeutics delivered in a medical device sort of way, maybe is the way to think about it. But how has that landscape changed, you know, especially over the last decade? I mean, we've had uh, uh, venture capital kind of disappear from medical devices. We've had Obamacare and the medical device tax and attempts to repeal that. Um, What has happened to the industry um, especially medical devices, and where do you see it going? Um, so that, that's, a, that's a great question. So the um, crash of 2008 um, really um, destroyed or damaged the venture capital industry that was focused on medical devices. In 2007 or eight, there were about 150 venture funds that were investing in med tech. And by 2012 uh, or 11, there were you know less than 30 wow. that were actively invested. Mm-hmm. Now there's a few more have gone in, but it's still maybe 40. And see, the other thing that happened during this time is the regulatory approval cycles for new products, new med tech products that didn't have a precedence, have prolonged gone longer, you know, from five six years to now 10 years. Mm-hmm. So the the app and most of the venture capital funds, or in fact all of them, are ten year have a ten year life. So if they're investing in their second or third or fourth year of the venture capital cycle, and it takes ten years uh, to uh, mature, it'll be beyond the life of their fund. Right. So as a result, they say, "Boy, I'm only going to invest in later stage companies." So the what's happened is the med tech industry has gotten. Um, impacted because early stage companies aren't getting funded by VCs that traditionally was funding them. So as a result, the the corporate VCs have venture arms of medtech companies have now stepped up and said we'll go earlier. Um, still, they won't probably won't invest in Series A, and the regulatory cycle also means it costs more to, to take these products to the other side. Right. And so if it's a PMA kind of product which requires a large clinical trial, uh, entrepreneurs are staying away from those because they can't attract enough capital to complete it. Mm-hmm. So so right around that time, the uh, digital um, health applications came along and there were a willing um, group of investors who were sort of tech crossover investors or tech investors who wanted to get into healthcare. They started participating, and so entrepreneurs started gravitating towards uh, Fitbit and, and more healthcare type um, applications of that. And they're simpler, they're tech, you know, mm-hmm. deterministic, lower regulatory burden, right. and um, and much higher failure rate. I mean, you know, out of a thousand um, digital health companies, you might have ten that actually make it. Right. Um, that area attracts uh, an expanded group of investors, not just the medtech, but also the the tech 
investors. Mm-hmm. So the landscape has changed. I mean, what we have been able to do is, with our model is that I said, you know, we should still go after the biggest problems. Even though the regulatory cycle is long, even though it's harder to raise money, we've, we've um, changed our model so we have a, a large group of scientists and engineers who can work on multiple things at a time. So um, we, we lower the overall cost of building companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't. The, each company doesn't have to invest in infrastructure. Doesn't have to have a CFO of every company. We have one admin group that supports, you know, eight or ten companies. Right. Um, we have a small manufacturing facility that supports all our companies. So each company doesn't have to invest in their own manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are the steps we've taken to reduce the burden of cost for building these companies. And um, we've also gone outside the U.S. for investors. So we still get a few investors, but the traditional VCs we're not even going and talking to. Um, so we're going to some hedge funds, we're going to South America for private family offices and uh, private in- investors, China, Asia. Um, so. Uh, different kind of mix of money, mm-hmm. corporate money, a lot of corporate investors, um, and very little the traditional VC that we are getting. Uh, but also our model is is optimized to reduce cost. Right. Um, so it's something a company that might cost us to you know cost, normally would cost 150 million dollars to build, we can probably do that for 50. We may not be able to do it faster, but cheap, definitely cheaper. Mm-hmm. And if you're working on new uh, uh, big problems that are, haven't been solved, time is generally a little on your side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With all that said, um, what would you tell the wannabe entrepreneur? Um, dream who, big. Weighing all of this. Big dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, um, solving big problems has big impact. And uh, personally, as an entrepreneur, if you work on a really impactful problem, it will give a huge boost to your career. Um, You know, doing little bitty things, incremental stuff. Yeah, you might make a little money, and uh, but it's not going to change the world. It's not going to have a huge impact on patients. So, if you're going to go through the struggle of uh, and heartache of building companies, go after the biggest problems. Make it worth it. Make it worth it. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this latest episode of BioFlash. Be sure to follow our daily coverage of the Bay Area's biotech industry at SanFranciscoBusinessTimes.com. And you can follow me and give me your feedback and tips on Twitter at rluty, that's R-L-E-U-T-Y underscore biotech. BioFlash is produced by Kevin Trong.